0: The People's Republic of China can always be relied upon to react with volcanic fury at the mildest acknowledgement of Taiwan by even the most modest entity. Earlier this year, for example, China embargoed imports from Lithuania, a country roughly one five hundredth China's size, after Lithuania not only permitted Taiwan to open a representative office in Vilnius, but to call it a Taiwanese representative office. So, when Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, America's third most senior political figure, announced her intention to visit Taiwan this week, there were many who wondered if this might be the most ill-judged diplomatic outreach since Archduke Franz Ferdinand decided to bestow the honour of a royal visit upon Sarajevo. As of this recording, at least, the consequences haven't been quite that drastic, though China is staging military exercises around Taiwan which have been notably belligerent even by China's standards where Taiwan is concerned. It is a reminder of the stakes in play, especially in a year where we have seen another nuclear-armed power attempt to reclaim what it insists is its rightful property. Why did Nancy Pelosi go to Taiwan? Has her visit helped in the slightest with anything? And are we beginning to see a new willingness by the democratic world to demonstrate its values to tyrannies? This is The Foreign
1: Desk. The Chinese have tried to isolate Taiwan, but they will not isolate Taiwan by preventing us to travel there. They are not doing our travel schedule. Our friendship with Taiwan is a strong one, It is bipartisan in the House and the Senate, overwhelming support for peace and the status quo in Taiwan.
2: Raise the tensions
0: in the Taiwan Strait and embolden the arrogance of the Taiwan independence forces. This is a highly dangerous trick, such as playing with fire. And those playing with fire will get burnt you're listening to The Foreign Desk, I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from Lithuania's Foreign Minister and the Director of the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund. But I'm joined, first of all, from the eye of this diplomatic storm by Samson Ellis, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief. Samson, let's start with the local reaction. This is a story which has consumed the world's attention all week. Has it been that big a deal in Taiwan itself?
3: Yeah, it has. I have to say, you know, one of the defining features of Taiwan is it is a democratic society and a very diverse society. And so the range of opinions on Pelosi's visits did range the entire spectrum. Certainly what was notable in the lead up to her visit is that I think the vast majority were kind of in the relatively indifferent to her visit. But since the visit happened and since we've seen we've got this reaction from China a couple of things that happened is that you know there was I think largely you know more positive view of her visit. Taiwan is often excluded from the international conversation and so these kinds of high-profile visits that do highlight the plight Taiwan is in you know they're broadly welcomed. That was tempered slightly obviously by the fact that China had been threatening retaliatory measures and so while Pelosi was here we didn't exactly know what those would be And then slowly China started, you know, announcing what it was going to do to punish Taiwan for this visit that Taiwan didn't really ask for in the first place. Is there any kind of resentment
0: at being used as a bit of a prop by a visiting politician and or concern that visits like this might end up forcing a resolution to a situation that Taiwan probably doesn't really want actually resolved?
3: It's certainly a question people are asking themselves, you know, what are we getting out of this visit? To be perfectly frank, you know, Taiwan wasn't really in a position to refuse the visit. Taiwan has to be relatively opportunistic in its diplomacy. And when somebody as high profile as Nancy Pelosi is willing to come to Taiwan, you take that opportunity. To be fair, there were plenty of people questioning the wisdom of the visit. Even if you support the principle of her going there, the question very much was, why now? But then I think as soon as details of her imminent visit were leaked and then China started briefing very aggressively against the trip, then it very quickly became a question of backing out now, will just hand a victory to China and Even the folks here who may not have been in favour of the trip did recognise that we can't let China dictate who does or doesn't come to Taiwan.
0: It has been suggested that part of the answer to the question why now is Ukraine and that this is the United States demonstrating to China that it shouldn't get any funny ideas about Taiwan in the way that Russia has about Ukraine. And on that score, I was wondering what sense you get of what lessons Taiwan's government has gleaned from what has happened in Ukraine? Have they sort of absorbed any lessons about how they should communicate with the world or how they should respond in the event that China did make a move on Taiwan?
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously Taiwan has been watching events in Ukraine very, very closely, as the rest of the world has been, and China too, of course. And the lessons that have come out of that, number one, are that it's very, very difficult to invade another country. The Russians have proved that very, very well. And that an invasion of Taiwan would be much, much more difficult than an invasion over a land border. But some of the things that Ukraine has done have definitely you know, improved their situation. People have noted how willing the Ukrainian population was to join the fight. And I think a lot of people here were actually quite moved You know, how much people were willing to sacrifice, including their lives, uh, to protect their country. Mm -hmm. So, that is definitely something people have noted here. And the government, too. The government is definitely, after decades of largely playing down the threat or the sense that, you know, the responsibility for protecting Taiwan was purely a military matter for the armed forces to deal with, uh, the government is certainly now trying to engage people in a much broader conversation that you know this will have to be an all-of-society approach and that Taiwan's reserve forces and the general population all have a part to play, whether or not you know first aid, whether or not you've got mountain survival skills, uh, whether you're a volunteer lifeguard at your local swimming pool, all of these resources are starting to be pulled together to have a much more broad all of society defense against this, then there's the kind of hardware side of things that, okay, we're going to start needing to build up inventories of key material here before anything happens.
0: Is there a long term plan anywhere, as you understand it? Because everybody has reiterated this week that they're keen on maintaining the status quo as it is. You know, Taiwan sort of continues to exist and indeed to prosper in this strange, ambiguous situation it exists in. But thinking ahead years and decades, nobody imagines that certainly any Communist Party government of China is going to let Taiwan go. And it's equally unimaginable that the people of Taiwan are going to turn out in a referendum and vote enthusiastically to reunify with the People's Republic. So does anybody think, do we ever resolve this? And if so,
3: how? That's an incredibly pertinent question and one I've been asking as many people as I can uh... Bore with this issue as possible. On the one side, the roadmap towards unification is quite clear. The PRC has one and the parties and elements within Taiwan who support unification have roughly the same roadmap. Slowly increase economic, cultural, academic, educational ties between Taiwan and the mainland. And then slowly over years, the Two sides of the strait become so intertwined with each other that you can't separate them. And then the last step is that political union. On the flip side, what is the pathway and the plan towards formal independence? That's much more vague and it's very difficult to find people with an answer. And I think the best answer I've ever got is that Taiwan does have to be a little bit or to a great extent opportunistic and just wait out the next 30 years and see what situation the People's Republic is in then. But I think one key thing that often gets overlooked is that in terms of a formal declaration of independence, that has been taken off the table as an option now. President wen has said that we already view ourselves as an, as an independent nation that is just waiting wider international recognition And so that was her telling everybody, I'm not going to stand up and formally announce independence. The only thing we have to do is persuade more people to recognise this and then maybe one day amend our constitution to remove the name Republic of China and turn it into Republic of Taiwan.
0: Samson, thank you for joining us. That was Samson Ellis, Bloomberg's Taipei Bureau Chief. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. In the days before Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, it was hard to miss a general feeling among America's allies, and indeed among Taiwan's allies, that they'd prefer it if she didn't. One Western democracy, however, arrayed itself right behind the speaker. Lithuania, which has been a notable supporter of Taiwan and has, as a consequence, been subject to considerable economic pressure and diplomatic contumely from China. Joining me now from Vilnius is... Gabrielius Landsbergis, Lithuania's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Minister, let's start with the stance Lithuania took on Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. You could, I suppose, have said more or less nothing, like the rest of the European Union did, but you decided to come out and support it. Why was that?
2: Well, I supported the principle, I would say, because what we're seeing, and it was very well witnessed here in Lithuania, that it's not the country's that have dealings with China, but China itself is pushing the red lines further because when it comes to the visit, it's not the first visit. They've taken place before uh, on different levels, but the point is that whenever parliamentarians or representatives from the different uh, democratic parliaments would visit Taiwan, it was supposedly accepted by everyone. And now I think that why it is a defining moment, because we've seen such a reaction Which basically raises a question, is it still possible for others to visit that as well? I supported this because I think that Madame Pelosi, with her visit, shows that it is possible for others to do that, the things that they've been doing before when it comes to the visits.
0: But to go back a little bit, this is an issue which is clearly important to you and at least an issue that you think should be important to Lithuania in terms of foreign policy, because there was that row between Lithuania and China earlier this year when Taiwan opened a representative office in Vilnius, and you allowed it to be called the Taiwan representative office. And usually they have to call it something else so everybody can pretend it isn't really Taiwan's representative office. But why did you think that was a stand worth taking?
2: Well, I think that basically when it comes to Lithuania's foreign policy, I would say that in most cases were standing on Uh, The side of, uh, back home, it's called, you know, values-based foreign policy. But my attitude, that is that we're talking about very important principles that need to be defended, like rules-based security or global order that we are part of, that our security depends on. And when we're seeing that this order or the area for this order is shrinking, when the authoritarian countries are shaping this to their liking, this should affect basically every country in the world. So honestly, I was a bit surprised that no other countries stepped up and expressed their concern whether their representatives from their elected parliaments would be able to visit Taiwan in the future. (laughs) So now I'm finding this a bit novel situation, which I did not think that it should be.
0: Earlier this year, though, China did embargo some trade with Lithuania. There were some economic consequences. Are you able, do you think, to persuade your voters that this sacrifice is worth it? Because as you will know, at least one poll commissioned by your own foreign ministry found the policy massively unpopular. You had 13 percent for and 60 percent against.
2: Well, at the moment when the poll was conducted in Lithuania, where in the midst of I would say economic attack by China, basically at that point, if i 'm not mistaken, one hundred percent of imports and one hundred percent of exports were banned so obviously, when you know, a country finds itself in the midst of uh, a very heated situation, it would be difficult to expect anything else. but I would say it is important for countries like Lithuania being you know small uh, who depend more on uh, international agreements than on its own national possibility to fight and win huge-scale wars, it is very important for countries like Lithuania to stand up for a rules-based international order. And it should not depend whether it's being attacked in the vicinity, in, you know, central and eastern part of Europe, or globally, because the principles that we depend on and our security and independence and territorial integrity depend on are still the same. The situation is different now. China relaxed some of the pressure that we had when it comes to imports. Exports are still blocked, but our exports during the first six months of this year, even with all the difficulties, even the, with the war, they've been growing about 30%. And big part of it was growing in the Indo-Pacific region. That means that we've increased our trade with Singapore, with South Korea, with Australia, with Japan. And I'm trying to portray that it's possible to replace China as a trade partner. And I think that there are more... Uh, More countries that are willing to trade with European countries more and actually to help us to diversify and not be dependent on one country which uses, as we've seen, trade as a political tool.
0: This goes back to something you mentioned earlier and that I know we spoke about when we met at the NATO summit in Madrid as well, that you were talking about this idea of NATO defending values as well as territory. Does it strike you that that's how Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan should be seen, that she was taking a stand on behalf of a particular set of values, those things like democracy, a rules-based order, etc.?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was established that representatives from democratic countries can visit Taiwan. It was accepted by China. You know, it does not break one China policy. It was, you know, the representatives from uh, United States, they visited Taiwan earlier, earlier this year. The shootings and literally did not follow <laughs> and all this what we're seeing. So I think that we have to be very specific that we are maintaining status quo. It's very important because if we allow the red lines to be pushed on us, it would be impossible to push them back.
0: I guess if we link the situations of Taiwan and Ukraine, is it your view that we should be past the point of trying to accommodate authoritarian powers, that at some point we do need to say this is where the lines are and we will defend them?
2: We had this process, you know, for several months now. After the Russian attack on Ukraine, you know, we've sat down with so many people, you know, uh, politicians, academia, we've sat down and said, okay, so basically we have to admit that our policy for the last 25 or so years, when it comes to Russia, it failed. We tried to accommodate, we did everything, we included in all possible uh, international scenarios and organizations and regional and global, and Russia did not want that. It still wants to be seen as a superpower that has an objective right outside its borders and outside the international agreements. So I would ask a question, do we still want to make the same mistake to accommodate a country that is aggressive? I mean, it's a very difficult uh, question whether it will work. I mean, while we're seeing rockets being shot at and around the Taiwan Strait, even some of them hitting Japan's territorial waters, and that does not merit a, a displeasure so to say, I mean, I'm very happy that G7 countries issued the statement because at least that draws a, a line somewhere. Just
0: finally, then, and to link everything together, you were talking there about how the policy that the West has pursued towards Russia over the last 25 years of trying to establish a certain amount of economic codependence and establish some norms and conventions of how we're all going to deal with each other. That policy has been shown to be a failure. Do you think we've made the same mistake with China?
2: Well, I think that there are definitely hints on the codependency that works against us. Our assumption was that uh, the codependency it works both ways, and when it comes to Russia, it will create a middle class that will ask and inquire for more independence in the political sphere. Maybe there were signs in 2008 and 2010, I would say maybe before the uh, Georgia attack, maybe then, that there is an emergence of middle class that is actually pro-democratic and is forming itself as a political class. But it was choked the minute that it seemed to show any kind of actual freedom, an actual possibility to throw a gauntlet or whatever. I mean, you know, kind of emerge as a, you know, a power within Russia. It was choked immediately. Nothing happened. Why? Because it's not a democracy. The government runs such an apparatus that it can't do those things. So why would it allow for middle class to form? So the same question now goes to China when we're talking about our dependency. And we expect it to be a codependency on supply chains. We're so much dependent. So is it, you know, in long term, good strategy? I would think that the lessons of our dependence on Russia should prove otherwise.
0: Gabrielius Landsbergis, Lithuania's Minister of Foreign Affairs, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Bonnie Glaser, director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Bonnie, for all that this has been the biggest story in the world this week, there is still a fairly obvious question at the heart of it, which is why did Nancy Pelosi decide to go to Taiwan and why now?
1: Well, I think that Speaker Pelosi has a long history of criticizing China's human rights practices, its threats to democracy. She has been a champion of democracy around the world, and she could be in her final year as Speaker of the House of Representatives. But I believe that this was really her personal choice she wanted to go to Taiwan and tell the people of Taiwan that the United States are strongly supportive of Taiwan and its democracy and would like to keep Taiwan safe and secure. There was an intriguing subplot
0: in that President Joe Biden was at pains to sound unenthused about the prospect of Speaker Pelosi going, clearly thinking that it might be inflammatory or at least just might not help very much. Do you get the sense that that was what Biden actually thought? Or was he giving himself an amount of deniability so he could say, look, I didn't really want to go, but what are you going to do?
1: Well, I would assume that President Biden received briefings from his military about the risks of Speaker Pelosi going. We even heard Nancy Pelosi say publicly before she went that she had been told that her plane could get shot down. So there were many scenarios that I think probably concerned President Biden. But our president of course served in the US Congress and the Senate for many decades and feels I think very strongly about the separation of powers. We have co-equal branches of government and he felt that it was inappropriate to tell Speaker Pelosi not to go. To Taiwan Now, he could have spoken to her directly without telling her what to do, but it appears, at least from the reporting, that he did not feel comfortable doing that either. So most of the communications, I believe, took place through staff at the White House, the National Security Council, and of course the military did give briefings to Speaker Pelosi. But I don't think the president was in any way being disingenuous.
0: While she was in Taiwan, Nancy Pelosi was at pains to talk about the United States' commitment to Taiwan. But does everybody involved here actually understand what that commitment is and what the United States would commit to in extremis?
1: Well, I don't think it is very clear what the US commitment is to Taiwan. The Biden administration has introduced some perhaps confusion into this question of U.S. commitments. In 1979, our Congress passed a law called the Taiwan Relations Act. And under that law, the United States has an obligation to sell Taiwan defensive weapons. And it also, as a policy statement, has to preserve a significant capability in the Western Pacific to prevent coercion against Taiwan. But there is no mention about US commitment to come to Taiwan's defense. We used to have that obligation under a bilateral mutual security treaty with Taiwan. That was in place from 1954 to 1979. And of course, the United States then established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China and broke that treaty. So the president today, Biden himself, has made unprecedented public statements that he would come to Taiwan's defense. Now, as president of the United States, he has that prerogative and he is trying, I think, to strengthen deterrence to prevent China from attacking Taiwan. But he has also said we have a commitment to do just that, in other words, to come to Taiwan's defense. And as I have just explained, we do not have such a commitment.
0: That ambiguity, though, is that deliberate to an extent that the United States doesn't want to lay down any big, thick red lines for fear that China might put a foot across one of them and then say, well, what are you going to do?
1: Well, I do think that the administration believes that our stance of what we call strategic ambiguity, that is not making clear whether the United States would come to Taiwan's defense, that that has helped to keep the peace for a very long time, and that we should not change that policy. There are people in the United States, including members of Congress, who are very vocally calling for the United States to change that policy to one of strategic clarity, giving Taiwan an ironclad guarantee that we would come to its defense. But of course, the more important question here, I think, is not just our declaratory statement, but whether or not we have the military capabilities to defend Taiwan. And here, I think the United States is falling short and lagging behind. We have a lot of work to do to ensure that we can, in fact, prevent a PLA invasion of Taiwan.
0: It's possible, isn't it, that the real nightmare scenario is not so much a full-scale Chinese attempt to seize Taiwan entire, but sort of a Taiwanese version of Russia's move on Ukraine in 2014. You don't try and take all of it. You just try and take a bit of it. And in this instance, stepping in for the Donbass and Crimea could be Kinmen and those other islands which belong to Taiwan, but which are right up close to the Chinese coast. I mean, if the tide is with you, you, could probably swim from the mainland to Kinmen. that would be a problem as well wouldn't it with establishing any clarity in commitment in that china picks off three or four absolutely tiny islands and then says are we really going to do world war three over this
1: Well, China has had the military capability to seize Jinmun, for example, which, yes, lies right off the coast of mainland China for decades, but it has chosen not to. My view is that would be a mistake and that China understands that it would just galvanize the Taiwan people to push for independence. It would push the international community to support Taiwan. It would really not get China closer to its objective of integrating Taiwan into the People's Republic of China. So I don't think that China is going to seize these smaller islands. I believe that the Chinese are using a range of economic and diplomatic and military measures to try and induce a sense of psychological despair among the people of Taiwan and also, of course, cyber attacks. They have a very big toolbox of these gray zone measures, which is essentially staying under the threshold that would lead to a military response by the United States. So they're trying to convince the people of Taiwan to just surrender, to realize that their future is going to be better if they just give up now. So I think that that's what we're likely to see from China in the coming years. However, if Taiwan were to declare independence, if China were to believe that the United States actually supported an independent Taiwan, if they lose confidence that we really have a one China policy, then I think that China will use force against Taiwan proper. It will seek to seize and control Taiwan, whether or not they believe the PLA has the capabilities to do so. As a
0: final thought, then, because elsewhere in this program, we have talked about with other guests the degree to which the United States thinking about Taiwan and indeed China's thinking about Taiwan might have been influenced by events in Ukraine. Is it possible, do you think, to see Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan as part of a slightly more robust posture in American foreign policy in i.e. standing up a bit more, obviously, to authoritarian? superpowers than it might have been these last couple of decades?
1: Well, I think that Ukraine factors into U.S. decision making. But let's again remember that Nancy Pelosi was not dispatched by the President of the United States. So this is not part of broader U.S. foreign policy. But the United States is certainly seeking to reassure Taiwan. And after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the White House did send an unofficial delegation composed of former military leaders and senior officials. And yes, that was intended to reassure Taiwan. The polls in Taiwan showed that there was a significant drop in how the public viewed the reliability of the United States to come to Taiwan's defense, even though, again, We don't have the obligation to do so. There was a lot of disinformation also coming from China aimed at the people of Taiwan, saying that since the United States really didn't rescue Ukraine, didn't send military forces on the ground in Ukraine, therefore the U.S. cannot be counted on to defend Taiwan. So against that background, yes, I think the United States is trying to reassure Taiwan, but that was not what the Pelosi visit was About. And from China's perspective, I would say Xi Jinping has his own logic about Taiwan. And whatever lessons China draws, I don't think is going to accelerate the timetable that he has for using force against Taiwan.
0: Bonnie Glaser, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.